All right, if you haven't already, I invite you to turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians as I recombobulate myself. 1 Thessalonians. Go to the Pauline epistles. The first and longest is Romans, and then Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and there we go. 1 Thessalonians. And I'm going to re be reading just verses 1 to 4. 1 Thessalonians 1 to 4. But I'm going to pray before I do that. Holy Father, thank you now that we can come before your word. We believe that your word is powerful, that you speak it and that it does not return to you void, which means that when you speak it, it does the work that you intend for it to do. And so we're asking that you would do the work that you intend to do in, in, in our church this morning as we listen to and meditate on your word. Help us to not just be hearers, but doers of Holy Scripture. Amen. First Thessalonians chapter 1. I, I said I was going to read 1 to 4, but actually... I'm only going to read 1 to 3, because that's all my sermon covers. 1 Thessalonians 1 and verses 1 to 3. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. So, uh, grace and peace. Did you hear those two words pop up there? Grace and peace. It's a common Pauline Greeting, introductory blessing, grace and peace to you. I don't want I think, to, I think the tendency would be to leap over that blessing and jump right to the, to the body of the letter, but I don't think that we should do that. I think we should pay attention to the blessing. Grace and peace, those are the two key words of the blessing. Those are two of the most important words in the world. Grace and peace. Why do you think he says it that way? Have you ever wondered that? Why does he say grace to you and then peace? Do you think the order matters? Do you think that's intentional? Do you think there's a reason that he didn't say peace to you and grace? I think so. I think that the word order itself in this opening greeting is theologically significant, and I think that we'll miss that if we simply leap over the greeting and say to ourselves, well, yeah, that's how Paul always opens his letters. He's just being friendly. Really? Well, why? Why does he open his letters that way? Grace. The word there in Greek is haris. Haris. The only reason I share that with you is because the word for joy in Greek is hara. Grace is haris. Joy is hara. You wouldn't know that in English. Grace and joy don't sound similar, but in Greek, they're from the same root word, grace and joy. In fact, the word grace wasn't originally a theological word. It wasn't a Christian word. It was just a Greek word. 
And it was a word that literally meant that which causes joy. Grace was that which causes joy. And the early Christians took that word that means that which causes joy, and they applied it to the free gift of our salvation, thereby making the point that the thing which brings ultimate joy to us is not an earthly thing, that the source of our ultimate joy is the joy that came to the world through the sending of God's only begotten Son. And not only was God's Son the bringer of joy, but he was the Prince of Peace. See, for those who receive God's gift of grace, they then enter into his peace. The order matters. Grace to you, grace to you, God's gift of salvation to you, and peace. You receive the gift of grace, and peace follows. Peace is the result. And I expect that everyone here knows that the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. It's a word, shalom, that's used to describe the state of things in the garden before the fall, before things got messed up, shalom. Today, we use the word more as a kind of negation, right? Peace means the absence of war, right? But the Hebrew is much more of a positive, proactive word. It meant wholeness or well-being. It meant that things are the way that they're supposed to be, shalom, and that because things are in a state of shalom, that we have contentment and satisfaction and joy and well-being and wholeness. It's a big word, shalom. It's a big positive word. So we receive God's gift of grace, and as a result, we experience deep and abiding peace. That's a beautiful way to open a letter. That is a blessing, to open the letter with a blessing of grace and peace. That's a blessing not just meant for the Thessalonians, but it's a blessing for us as well. Grace to you and peace. After the greeting, Paul immediately shifts and gives a, give, gives a short report on his prayer life. He goes right into telling him what he prays for and why he prays it. Right? Grace and peace to you. Grace to you and peace. And then he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Right? What, what, what does that simple statement tell you about Paul's prayer life? We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers. First thing that strikes me there is that Paul prays a lot. Right? Always. He prays always. He's constantly mentioning the Thessalonians in his prayers. That's a lot of praying. I don't, I don't take that to mean that that's all Paul ever does is pray always all the time and nothing else. We know that he did other things. I take it to mean that Paul is committed to praying for the Thessalonians and he will never give up. He will never stop praying for them. There will never come a time in his life when he says, all right, well, I've prayed enough for them. I'm going to move on now. No way. He's always going to pray for them. He's constantly going to pray for them. There's never going to come a season in his life when he's not praying for them. And the question I think that we should ask ourselves is, are we committed to the power and to the importance of prayer in the same way? Well, what was he praying for them? Primarily, he's giving thanks, he says. 
I find that interesting. I'd be willing to bet that for most of us, our prayers lean disproportionately towards intercession, right? asking God to do something, either for ourselves or asking God to do something for someone else, right? Making requests, intercessory prayer, like when we pray, Lord, please bring peace to Ukraine. It's an intercessory prayer. Lord, please bring healing to so-and-so's body. Lord, please, please bring comfort to so-and-so who's suffered a great loss. Lord, please give me the right words to speak into this difficult situation. Those are all intercessory prayers, asking God for something. And of course, those prayers are good. Those prayers are biblical. Those prayers are God-honoring. It's good for us to take our needs and requests to God in prayer. Probably most of us also, in addition to intercessory prayer, spend time in prayer in confession and in adoration. But seriously, how much time do you spend thanking God on behalf of other people? Right? I don't mean thanking God for the food you're about to eat, although that's a good thing to do, or thanking God for a good night's sleep. I mean spending significant time thanking God for what is going on in other people's lives. Apparently, Paul spent a lot of time doing that. In fact, he always did it. He did it constantly. We give thanks to God always for all of you. Perhaps we should spend more time doing that. And what specifically now, what is Paul thanking God for with regard to the Thessalonians? Well, he's thanking God for what they're like. That's what he says. I thank God for, and then he describes what marks the Thessalonian church. He's thanking God for that, right? Every church is like something. Every church has a personality. Every church has an emphasis. Every church has a character, right? Particular attributes or characteristics or behaviors. I, was, I spoke with someone not that long ago. She was describing her church, uh, which is in Grand Rapids, but she said, we're, we're, we're really into social justice. Oh, okay, well, that's something that defined them. That's what they're about. I've often heard people say about Ebenezer, man, they really love to sing. Oh, they're really friendly at that church. Okay, those are things that we're maybe defined by. So what was the church in Thessalonica? What were they defined by? What was Paul thanking God that they're like this? Well, three things he lists, three parallel phrases. He's thanking God for their work of faith, for their labor of love, for their endurance or steadfastness of hope. Those three things. It says, I thank God constantly, always remembering you in my prayers. So here's what I'm thanking them for. I'm thanking them for your works of faith. I'm thanking them for your labors of love. And I'm thanking them for your steadfastness of hope. So I think it's worth noticing the, the Pauline triad there, if you didn't already. Faith, hope, and love. That's what he's thanking God for about the Thessalonians, their faith, their hope, and their love. Let's briefly consider each one. Work of faith. He says, I thank God, you Thessalonians, I thank God for your work of faith. Now that's an interesting phrase, work of faith. Remember who that's coming from, the Apostle Paul. Mr. Saved by grace and not by works, so no one may boast, Right? The guy who wrote in Romans 3, we are saved by faith and not by works. 
So what, is it, what does he mean when he uses the phrase works of faith? Well, I think it's important to start by saying works of faith don't in any way contribute to our salvation. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by works. But we're not, we're not saved by our works, but faith works. Faith is active. Faith is not ever a mere exercise of the mind. Right? It's, it's, it's not the act of mentally assenting to a few doctrines, right? Oh, I believe that, I believe that, I believe that, check, done. It's not that, that's not faith. Faith is a belief in God, it is a, it is a, it is a deep and profound trust in God that moves us to action. Faith trusts God so much that it acts on that trust. It lives out that trust. What, 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 what kind of actions does faith do? What's the work of faith? Well, I, as I thought about that, the, the illustration I, that popped into my head was picture a muscle-bound, big, strong bodybuilder, right? He has big muscles. He's very strong. What does he do with his strength? Well, one thing that this guy does, I know, is he works to maintain it. Right? You ever notice that it's the big, strong, muscle-bound guys who are in the gym? It's not the little skinny guys like me that are in the gym? Does that strike you as peculiar? Right? You think that I'm the one that needs it. You think that I would be in the gym, but it's not guys like me. It's the guys with the big muscles who go there. And if you ask one of them, hey, what are you doing here? You, you don't need to get big muscles. You already have them. I expect that that person would respond, yeah, but now that I have these muscles, I need to work to maintain them or they'll go away. It takes work to maintain those muscles. And so it is with faith. Part of the work of faith is the work to maintain our faith. And if we don't put in that work, then we ought not to be surprised if our faith atrophies, it shrinks, it, it shrivels. Faith is a God-given gift, right? We don't give ourselves faith. Faith is a gift from God. But that, with that gift comes a stewardship, comes a responsibility. We need to maintain our faith. We need to work at it, works of faith. It's like that old and faithful Christian who was asked, he was asked, hey, why do you read the Bible every day? You've already read it. You know what it says. Why do you read it every day? And why do you pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit? Don't you already have the Holy Spirit? And he answered, I leak. That's why I pray for the Holy Spirit every day. I leak. That's why I read my Bible every day. I leak. I pray for the Holy Spirit to fill up what leaks out of me every day. Listen, that's part of the work of faith. It's putting in the time and the effort to pursue God, to draw near to God, in order that we might experience His power and His presence. And if we don't do that, then we shouldn't be surprised if we find ourselves struggling with our faith and wondering where God is. He didn't go anywhere. But perhaps our faith is weak because we haven't been doing the work of faith and working it out. I was reading... William James this week, he was not a Christian, but he was an insightful religious philosopher. And he said this, he said, you can control your beliefs, you can determine what you believe, you will believe whatever you choose to pay attention to. Now, that's maybe a little overstated, 
But basically what he was saying is that the diet of things that you are shoving into your brain every day, that which you are eating intellectually, in a very practical way is going to determine what you believe. What you choose to pay attention to is going to determine what you believe. And that is why the work of faith, at least part of the work of faith, is filling our minds with things that are true and draw us near to God and avoiding things that would confuse us or drive us away from God. But listen, if that's all the work of faith is, that's a little too self-focused, right? That would, that would, be, that would be like the strong man, go back to that guy again for a minute, if he, if he only ever lifted heavy things in the gym. Right? Now, I personally, I don't know what it feels like to have big, strong muscles, but I can only assume that part of the reason why someone would want to grow their muscles is so that they can use them in the real world. Right? It can't be totally vanity, can it? <laughs> Surely there's a purpose to have strong, big muscles, I would think. Right? Now, whether or not weight... I don't know what motivates weightlifters. But I do know that part of the reason for Christians to build up their faith is not just so that we'll have big, strong faith, but so that that will drive them into action. Drive us empower us to get out there and live it out and be a blessing on others. And that, too, is the work of faith. It's the work of taking our beliefs and living them out in the real world. It's saying, I believe that God loves me so much, loves me every day the same. He even calls me by my name. And I believe that he has called me by name and commissioned me to get out there and to love others in real, practical, tangible, life-changing ways. And I'm not just going to sit here believing those things, but I'm going to let those beliefs drive me to action, and I'm going to get out there, and I'm going to love others. That, too, is the work of faith. So the work of faith means making sure we're taking good care of our faith, intentionally doing things to maintain our faith and grow our faith and strengthen our faith, and then letting that healthy, strong faith drive us into action so that we're living it out in real time in the real world. The second phrase that Paul thanks God for the Thessalonians is for their labor of love. Labor of love sounds similar to works of faith. Not identical, but similar. The word labor here is a very strong word. Labor, stronger than the word work, works of faith. It, it implies maximum effort, toil, labor, hard work, s sacrifice, maybe even suffering. It's a very strong word. Right? And that's the funny thing about love, isn't it? It's a strong word. Love is free, right? Yes. And yet, love is free, and at the same time, it is so very costly. Right? Perhaps Perhaps the most profound statement about the cost of love is also one of the most famous statements about love. It goes like this. God so loved the world that he gave. What did he give? His most precious thing. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Love means giving. Love means sacrifice. Love means dying. That's the labor of love. Dying to myself, dying to my rights so that I can love the Lord and love others. Now, I can't, I can't even begin to enter into that labor of love, loving God, loving others, 
if my world revolves around myself, right? If, if my world revolves around my preferences, my desires, in order to engage in the labor of love, that requires selflessness, privileging the needs and desires of others above my own. Now, that's never easy, but it's a lot easier when it's reciprocated, right? It's easier to love someone who loves you back. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's easier. But part of the labor of love is the calling that Jesus put on us to love not just those who love us back. In fact, he said, what good is that? Everyone does that. Even the pagans do that. But no, no, no. I want you to be marked by the kind of love that loves all the time and that loves everyone. And then he went ahead and said it. Even your enemies. Even your enemies. That kind of love requires toil, labor, hard work, sacrifice, suffering. Remember Darlene Dibler-Rose last, uh, last Reformation Sunday? Remember the way that she loved her captors? Remember that Japanese prison camp that she suffered in? And the torture that she bore at the hands of her captors and how she just responded to that with love and love and love and more love. And remember how God used Darlene's labor of love to break the hard heart of one of her prison guards and to bring him to faith. That's the labor of love. It's not easy, but that's what we're called to. The labor of love is Elizabeth Elliot staying in Ecuador and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to the very men who murdered her husband. And as a result of that gospel ministry that she engaged in, seeing many people from that village come to faith in Jesus Christ, that's the labor of love. The labor of love means absorbing an insult and not responding with that nasty comeback, even though you have the perfect comeback to say in that setting. It means doing the thankless job and not being thanked because it's a thankless job and no one even notices that you did it. It means saying the hard thing to a friend who needs to hear it, even though maybe that friend doesn't want to hear it. To use the words of 1 John 4, this is love. I say this to every kid before I baptize them. They don't get it. They don't understand it, but it's true, and it's from the Bible. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's love. That's the labor of love. That's our model. And Paul thanks God because the Thessalonians are marked by that kind of sacrificial, self-giving labor of love. Finally, the final phrase that he's thanking God for the Thessalonians is for their steadfastness of hope. When it's phrased that way, steadfastness of hope, that's a very literal and kind of clunky translation. Uh, it almost sounds like it's making a statement about the quality of their hope. Their hope is steadfast. That they, have, that they have the kind of hope that is steadfast and remains strong no matter what circumstance they face. That's not quite what's being said here. If you're reading along in the NIV, I think it does a better job of capturing the meaning of the phrase. It's translated there, the endurance inspired by hope. The endurance that comes from or the steadfastness that comes from the hope that you have, right? It's not the hope that's steadfast. It's the Thessalonians who are made steadfast because of their hope. 
the, the word there, hope, the word is elpis. Elpis, if, if, if you pushed me and forced me to choose one favorite word from the New Testament, I'd pick that. That would be my choice, elpis, hope. When the Bible refers to hope, it, doesn't, it never means a vague sort of wishful thinking, right? Like, like I, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow because I'm going on a picnic, so I hope it doesn't rain. I'm not sure if it will. Not, that's not the hope that the Bible talks about. The elpis hope of the New Testament is a confident expectation of a particular outcome. Right? I'll give you an example. It's like the difference between how you feel about the odds of making a 20-foot putt versus a two-inch putt. Right? In both cases, you hope you make it. Right? You hope you make your putt. But in my case, and we're just talking about me, my likelihood of making a 20-foot putt is about 1 in 100. Seriously. Right? I, I'll still take the putt. I hope I make it. Or 1 in 100 happens every now and then, right? I hope I make it, but I have no confidence that I actually will. But even though I'm a horrible putter, when I say that I hope I make my 2-inch putt, I have every confidence and expectation that I will in fact make it because I make two-inch putts 100 times out of 100. That's the kind of hope that we have as Christians. Two-inch putt hope, right? Okay, but, but what hope, hope in what? What are we hoping for? Well, we're, we're hoping that this story that we're living ends in joy and not in tragedy. We're hoping that Jesus Christ will return from his seat at the right hand of the Father. And that he will gather his people, the church. And that he will establish his kingdom and make everything right again. We're hoping that God was telling the truth when he said that we have the gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the Bible teaches that that Christian hope, that's not a 20-foot putt kind of hope where you hit the ball, close your eyes, say a prayer, and hope it goes in. It is the two-inch putt kind of hope, where you know, you have the confident expectation that that ball is going in that hole. All right, well, that's our Christian hope. And here Paul is saying that that kind of hope results in endurance or steadfastness or perseverance. Right? In other words, you are equipped to endure anything that comes your way today when you know that ultimately all will be well. Right? Maybe it would help to think of some painful medical treatment that you know is going to result in healing in the future. That confident expectation of future health enables you to endure the pain today. And that's what Paul is getting at. We Christians are blessed with the knowledge that there is a good and sovereign God reigning over all things. And that he will ensure that all things end well. And that hope gives us endurance today. And the Thessalonians had that, and Paul could tell that they had that by the way that they were living. So those were the three things that marked the early church at Thessalonica, things for which Paul always constantly thanked God for. They were marked by the work of faith, by the labor of love, and by the endurance of hope. And the only thing left for us this morning is to ask ourselves the obvious application question. Do those things mark us? 
if Paul observed our church, or if Paul sent a Timothy to come and observe our life together and then go back and report to him, would he constantly thank, be thanking God in all of his remembrance of us for our work of faith, our labor of love, and our endurance of hope? Is that what Timothy would report back to Paul? If not, why not? If not, what can we do to get there or at least be moving in that direction? In what ways are we building up our own faith and how is our own faith then driving us, driving our actions so that we are constantly engaged in works of faith? In what ways is our love, our labor of love, costly and sacrificial? Do we only love those who love us back or do we love everyone? What would it even mean for us to love everyone and how do our actions demonstrate that? When was the last time that we collectively as a church paid a real price, paid a real sacrifice for our love? How, we, how might we increasingly engage in this kind of labor of love? And are we marked by the confident hope that the Bible talks about and does that hope cause us to be steadfast and faithful in all things today? It's my belief and my observation that we are marked by these things, but that we also have room to grow in these things. Now, I don't think that should surprise us. We're a church in process, just like any other church. We're on a journey, we stumble along, but we keep moving in a Godward direction. And as long as we keep our eyes fixed on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, then he will keep shaping us into who he wants us to be until he returns and brings us home to be with him forever. So let's pray and let's ask God to keep growing us. Holy Father, thank you for this message. Thank you for Paul. Thank you that he was willing to share a little window, a little insight into his prayer life. Thank you for his faithfulness in prayer. That we learned this morning some of the content of his prayer, that we've had the privilege of sitting and listening to the types of prayers that Paul prayed. And I pray that these things that he was celebrating and thanking God for with regard to the character and behavior of the church at Thessalonica, I pray that those things would be true of us as well. I thank you that they are currently true. And I pray that you would continue to grow those character traits in our church. I pray for your help in our works of faith. I pray that our faith would be strong, that we would be faithful to build it up, and that our faith would drive us to action and push us into the community. I pray for our love. I pray that you would enable us to embody a, a costly, comprehensive, sacrificial Christ-like love towards all, towards everyone, without exception. And I pray for our hope, that we would fix our hope in the right direction, on the right things, and that that hope would be strong, would be confident, and that that hope would enable us to have endurance. Endurance today, knowing that you are sovereign and good, that you have a plan, 
and that all will be well. In Christ's name, amen.